Welcome to the Veterans Breakfast Club, where veterans tell their stories. The mission of the Veterans Breakfast Club is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories, and we accomplish this through public storytelling programs where veterans of all eras can share their memories in their own words. Enjoy the program. Well, good morning, and welcome to the Veterans Breakfast Club in Wexford at Grazi's Restaurant. And we always like to begin by uh, singing uh, the national anthem, and today we have Tony La Spada. Where'd you go, Tony? Let me get you. There you are, right there. Very good. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous night or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of a free and the home of the brave. Well, thank you so much, Tony. Appreciate it, sir. Well, one of the things uh, that we do as a not-for-profit, uh, it's important that we have sponsors because sponsors help us pay in the bills. And we have uh, two gracious sponsors uh, with us uh, today. And so first we have from Concordia and uh, Cranberry, we have Tara Crawford, and with her is Candy from Good Samaritan. So which one of you is going to speak first? Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for letting me attend today. Um, I just wanted to say a couple words. Um, the first is, I don't know if any of you are aware, but the first Miss USA was is an Army reservist. So that was a new, part of the news coming that, that just uh, happened uh, last couple days. So that's pretty cool. A member, the first member of the U.S. Uh, military is actually Miss USA. So pretty awesome. Um, Concordia is who I'm here today to represent, and for many of you, um, you're way too, you know, healthy at this point in your lives to need any of my buildings, which are licensed personal care homes, but just to let you know, um, Rebecca Residence over in Allison Park is doing a groundbreaking ceremony here um, in the next few weeks, and they're building independent living, so if anybody here is looking to maybe downsize from their home, my mother just did it in Maryland, and it's a wonderful gift to your children. Um, but anyway, Concordia of Rebecca Residence is building all independent living uh, unit 
part of the Concordia system. And um, I did give, I think everybody hopefully got a bag with my contact information. If you have any questions at all, feel free to call me. Um, and I appreciate your service to this country. And I, and I am grateful to be here today. So thank you very much. Well, Tara, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And Candy's going to speak to us as well. Hi, I'm Candy Hepler with Good Samaritan Hospice, also owned by Concordia Lutheran Ministries. I want to thank you all for your service for our country, because who knows where we would be today without each and every one of you sacrifice. Um, I'm proud to be an American, and I am so glad to be a sponsor of this event, because I have such warmth in my heart for each and every one of you. Good Samaritan Hospice, I left you a different type of paper today. It's called Reflections of Care. And as we go through life, we all come through different stages on our journey. If anybody would ever like me to come to your house and talk to you about what you're going through or what your plans are for your future with your care or for the care of your loved one, I would be happy to come and um, collaborate with your doctors help you in any way I can to help you have a great plan so you can have the best quality of life. Every day is a gift. That's why we call it the present. Enjoy every day. Thank you so much, Candy. Appreciate it. We also have Concerned Veterans of America, and we have Chuck Schrankel and Darlene Eppingers here. Uh, we are the Concerned Veterans for America. Uh, Darlene, my uh, partner, is here. And I'll tell you, she's, I asked her to critique me, get up here and, you know, fill in where I missed uh, today. Uh, before I start on the CVA, I want to mention a couple of days ago we, uh, we recognized D-Day. And there are a lot of World War II vets in here. And, and I got to tell you something. I, I, I have great admiration for everybody who has ever put on the uniform of the United States Army. But, but you folks, the reason we can sit in a room like this and, and discuss ideas and disagree and express our opinions is because of you World War II guys. I asked uh, Harry Kirsch how tall he was. He said he used to be 5'8", probably closer to 5'6", but you know what? He's a giant. And the rest of you guys that were in that great war are giants. I don't care how tall you are. So just God bless you. Thank you for everything. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to be up here saying what I'm going to say. Uh, okay, let me get back to business now. Uh, let me tell you what the CVA, Concerned Veterans for America, isn't. We are not looking for money. We are not trying to eliminate the VA. And we are not partisan or political. What we are is a grassroots organization that was founded by younger vets, the, the, the OEF, OIF guys, coming back and saying, you know what? There's something wrong with the care that our vets are getting, and we're going to do something about it. And so they are do some, doing something about it. And we want to, and, and part of that is holding our elected officials accountable to the, uh, uh, the principles of our founding fathers. Now, when I say accountable, if you notice, a couple, there are three of our local politicians whose main concern right now is whether they're going to attend their national convention or not. Okay, don't you wonder when you hear that what they have, what they have in there? Okay, we want to do something to make these guys, if they have principles, show that they have principles. Uh, so what does it mean when we, uh, we talk about grassroots? Well, uh, we are gathering a network of voices. Now, this is big. That is what we're collecting, not money but voices, and this is big. Uh, 
because if we call our elected veterans call on their elected officials on an issue, they understand that there are a lot of people in this veteran community that are concerned about a particular issue. And I'll talk more a little bit in a minute. Secondly, they're going to understand that we represent a tremendous voting block, and maybe they ought to start paying attention to us. Uh, now, how do we do this? First of all, we're making calls all over the state of Pennsylvania, identifying veteran households, veteran advocates, uh, families, uh, and so forth, to and, and getting establishing an interest. Yes, uh, uh, yes, I would be available to make a phone call. Okay. Secondly, we are prepared when we get this information to alert uh, you to issues. Call or email and say, this is coming up in Congress. Maybe you ought to call your elected official. Let them know how you stand. And then finally, get out the vote. Now, let me, let me say that when we alert you to an issue and you ought to express your opinion, we're not going to tell you what your opinion is. When we suggest you just get out and vote, we're not going to tell you who to vote for. They need to hear our voices. Now, on the table, you have several things. You've got a brochure, a folding brochure. Take it with you. It's a very brief description of what we do. You have a book. This, uh, this book, these are on the table outside, okay? The, the veterans, Fixing Veterans Health Care. Talk about that in a minute. Uh, you have an out there business cards for Darley and myself. And then you have sign-up sheets. Now, what are the sign-up sheets for? Uh, we need your voice. And if we don't have that, your information, how to contact you, we can't, we can't get your voice. And, and believe me, we're not going to solicit funds. Use this information to solicit funds. We're asking that everybody sign up. As a matter of fact, Dar Lee has told me nobody leaves without signing the sheet, okay? And she'll be at both exits at once, so you can't, you can't get away from it. Anyway, if you've already done it, of course, uh, uh, thank you for that. But if not, please fill out these sheets and give us your information because that's the only reason, the only way we're going to get our, our uh, uh, politicians to pay attention to us. Uh, now, one thing I want to talk about this, the, the VA, and, and it is a success. There's, there's an act in Congress right now called the VA Accountability Act. Believe it or not, it takes an act of Congress to fire an inept VA employee. This act is in Congress. It's passed the House with the support of our local uh, 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 Tim Murphy, uh, Keith Rothfuss have supported it. It's in the Senate. It's being held up by, by uh, 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 McConnell, Senator McConnell. Believe it. I don't know why, but it's being held up there. This act very simply authorizes VA management to fire those people who are not doing their job. Okay. Now, let me go back to one thing. The, the fact that uh, you may be having getting good service from the VA, you say, well, I don't know it need to participate. They're treating me fine. Think of your brothers or sisters in Philadelphia or Phoenix or the ones here that aren't with us anymore because of VA ineptness. Okay, these are the people we're working for. So please join us in this venture. Uh, I, I think that is all. We'll be available to answer questions, and uh, please give us your support. We need the voices. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chuck.
Well, I didn't introduce myself uh, before the sponsors, but I'm Ben Wright, and I have the, the privilege of working with the Veterans Breakfast Club and working alongside uh, Todd DiPostino, who is the executive director, so I'll be moderating our, our time together. But uh, I love the Veterans Breakfast Club, and the reason I'm so involved in it is I love to hear stories, and I know that you do uh, as well. And so we have a forum that is a safe place for veterans to get together for fellowship and to share with one another uh, with their, their stories, because we find that a lot of people have not even shared their stories with their own families. And this is a place to do that. And we do ask your help to do that. Uh, and the way that we, we do is we'd love for you to bring in photographs or memorabilia. Uh, and we can take photographs of that. And then in future breakfasts, we have that available and hope that uh, you'll be willing uh, to speak uh, and tell us your story. But we, we love to have the, uh, the visual aids as well. Uh, this is the new newsletter that's at the printer and hopefully will be in your mailbox next week. And if it doesn't appear in your mailbox or the, the past ones have not, it's because we don't have your mailing address in our database. So we do ask. Uh, that you fill out a little slip that we have at the check-in table if you're not already receiving our mailings uh, and sign up so that uh, you can uh, receive those. Uh, another way that we support ourselves is with a 50-50 and uh, Marshall Gordon, are you still selling tickets? At any rate, uh, Marshall uh, had the basket going around and we split that 50-50 for, there's Marshall hiding back there by the buffet, uh, to, uh, to you uh, and for the benefit of the uh, uh, Veterans Breakfast Club. We also, uh, just as last year, we have a new promotional video, so I'm going to get uh, Kevin Farkas, who... Uh, also part of the Veterans Breakfast Club is Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh, and he works very hard with interviews and videotaping. I'm Roscoe's youngest daughter, Kathy, and I'm here with my two sisters and my mom and my brother-in-law is my husband. My dad was, he was in the hospital. We were all with him, and one day he, he asked me, he said, hey, Kath, what's the date? And I said, it's January 5th. And he looked at me and he said, 71 years ago tomorrow, I left Bastogne. Well, my dad died on January 6th, 71 years after he left Bastogne. There isn't a person in here that was in the outfit I was in. I was a mule skinner. Three of my buddies got killed. Uh, we were supposed to be there for 12 months. I don't even know how to put it, but I became very fond of Afghanistan. It was one of the worst days ever for me, honestly, because uh, I knew we would never all be together again. Those were the best friends I'll ever have. Some of them aren't with us anymore. We had already been overseas for three years, so we were participating in uh, three different invasions, and by the time we got there to Dachau, it was uh, April the 29th, and we got out 31,000 people out of that camp, which were alive, but they were barely alive. Some of them even died within the hour. Every veteran has a story to tell. Mine, I could tell you in one minute, but what happened between seconds and a minute would take me 44 months. I was the first wave in Africa, first wave in Sicily, first wave on D-Day. I was a prisoner of war, I was wounded, and I was on a ship that was sunk. What could happen to one man? 
the mission of the Veterans Breakfast Club is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories so that this living history is never forgotten. Through this work, we believe that people will be educated, healed, and inspired. This year, we launch our post 9-11 veterans storytelling project so that our youngest veterans, those who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, can have a chance to tell their stories. So please consider joining us at a breakfast. There are no membership dues or fees, and you don't have to be a veteran to attend. All you need to do is listen, and the veterans will do the rest. Yeah, most of that was recorded here at the last breakfast. Well, I want you to notice that uh, a couple of the stars in the video are here with us, and one of them is Alex Dagan. Alex, we're going to get to talk to you here in a few minutes, but we are so honored to have you here uh, and to have a Pearl Harbor survivor uh, to come, come be with us. Uh, also was Nick Grimes. Nick's wave pretty so everybody will see you. Nick heads up our uh, Post 9-11 Veteran Project. And if you know post 9-11 veterans, they need to know about what we're doing uh, for them because this format doesn't work with a breakfast. Most of them are in school or work, unfortunately, too many in different uh, rehabilitation programs. So we're doing evening programs for them. So talk to Nick and refer uh, any of your friends to that. If you'd like to read more stories each year, Todd and Kevin get together and they lay out and prepare this magazine. And it's a big hit and there's wonderful stories. Uh, I've been reading them and they're great and you'll enjoy them and we have those available uh, for sale uh, for $10 and the usual other uh, books, uh, hats and shirts. Uh, one other announcement before we get stories, we also have Bruce Decker here from the Veterans History Project. Bruce, where'd you go? Yeah, there you go. So uh, Bruce can, uh, is just going to make a, a brief announcement about uh, that history project. Thank you very much. Some of you recognize me having been here before. I'm part of a team. Chuck, where are you? There he is. Chuck Jennings is the other part. We're involved with the Veterans History Project of the Library of Congress. The purpose of this project is to get the stories of veterans from all times in the service. Uh, we have a lot of World War II veterans here. I've interviewed a number of you. Uh, we have a lot of people, from, not a lot of people from Iran and or from Iraq and, and Afghanistan. We'd like to have more. And you ladies, take these guys that don't want to talk about what they did and tell them to get their story onto video with one of us interviewers. Uh, everybody has a story. What I would like you to do, if you would, Chuck and I are here. Come up to me afterwards. I, I have some cards. Let me have your name, phone number, and I'll get back to you. Everybody who's done this so far, when they finish it up, say that they've thoroughly enjoyed it because they, they get a video disc that they can give to their children. The video also goes into the Library of Congress forever. So 100 years from now, if somebody's doing genealogy and they wanted to know what Jack Morrow did, they can go to Congress, the Library of Congress, and there it'll be with him giving his story, whatever his story may be. One guy that I was talking to, he said, well, I was just in the Navy. I was in for, for the, the duration of World War II. 
Well, what did you do that was exciting? Well, nothing very much. I was a radio operator. Where were you a radio operator? He named his ship. Well, what was your job? He said, well, we set offshore and handled communications back and forth between the, the generals and the, uh, the captains of the Navy and the men on, on shore. Well, what battles were you in? Okinawa, Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima. Oh, let's talk about it a little bit, and we did. Uh, but not everybody went to Okinawa or, or Iwo Jima. You, maybe you went someplace else. Everybody has a story, and we want to get it and put it in for perpetuity. Uh, so contact either Chuck or I, and we'll be, be very glad to come by. Thank you. Well, thank you, Bruce. And uh, we're, we're with you on wanting to preserve uh, the stories that we have. Well, next up, we have Joe Turba, who is here. Joe, you can just stay right there. I'll bring you the, the microphone. Now, you have to speak straight into this thing uh, to, to get it to here. So it looks like you were in the Marines. How did you wind up in the Marines? Uh, my brother, my two cousins, my uncle. So it was a family deal. There was, uh, you, yeah. you were going to the Marines, or you were deep mm-hmm. serious yes. at the house. Uh, the first picture is my high school picture. That was in 1968. Well, 67. I graduated from Southwest High School in 1968. That picture was taken one week after I came back from North Carolina, went down to see my cousin. So that's where the suntan is. <laughs> then uh, 19, I, after high school, I went to Conley Tech, took two years computer programming, then joined the Marine Corps. Got down to boot camp thinking I was going to be a computer programmer. Instead, they sent me to San Diego for radio telegraph school. I had four weeks of Morse code. In fact, I was just out there last month in April, figured it was 45 years since I completed radio school, so I went out to see, see the base. It was completely, completely different. The barracks I lived in before school started is now a museum. The whole row of uh, buildings that were there the first when the base opened up is now historical buildings. Uh, after radio school, the class in front of us went to Vietnam. Our class went to Okinawa. So I spent 13 months in Okinawa. Came back from Okinawa, went to 8th Combat Battalion down at Camp Lejeune. While at Camp Lejeune, I went on two med cruises. Second med cruise, I was over there in August of 73. Got stuck over there during the Yom Kippur War. After we got down with our operation, our operation in uh, Turkey, the captain of our ship didn't want to de-snail at the uh, Turkey there, so we headed for road to Spain, and that's when the Yom Kippur War broke out. So we went back and forth, finding up in Laverno, Italy, at Camp Darby, and desnailed the ship, desnailed our equipment there, and uh, half the guys went back on the ship, the other guys half stayed at the, at the base. I was lucky enough to stay at the base, so we were there about a month. Snuck down to Rome two weekends. I said, I'm this close, my dad fought, so I'm going down. And uh, that's just about it right now. So you uh, saw a lot of places in the Mediterranean. Yes. You're also going to share with us about uh, one of your relatives. Oh, yeah. About a year or so ago, my mother said, I had a box of stuff with your dad's stuff in. So I got it in December. And the one with the cross was, was the first picture I had. This is my great uncle who was killed five weeks before the end of World War I. At the time, I didn't have a picture. I didn't even know I had a great uncle. But on the sad side, back in March, my mother passed away, and she had another box with, with the picture. So now I have a picture with my great uncle to go with the uh, cross. And a, uh, the government sent, him, get, sent my grandfather the uh, death certificate with the date of KIA. Also, I found out the paperwork. I also had a great aunt still who was living in Lithuania. 
Uh, I think it's in France. And the reason it's Turbis, my grandfather worked in the mines at New Kensington, and there was too many Turbises, so he changed it to Turba. I, I haven't had a chance to look it up yet. Okay. Yeah, or even the, uh, the infantry, the uh, company he was with. I haven't had a chance to look that up yet. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us, and uh, we'll look forward to, to learning some more. Well, we have Alex with us, and Alex has shared his story again. You don't have to uh, stand up. You can just stay here. Uh, but he told us last time about being a mule skinner and being at Pearl Harbor. But I understand there's a really interesting story how you wound up in the Army in the first place, and you'll need to speak right into that so everybody can hear you. Okay. So how'd that happen? I, uh, I lost my parents back in uh, 33 and 34. And I was placed in the Holy Family Institute in Emsworth. And the nun took, after I reached uh, 16, the nun took me down to the recruiting and uh, told them to put me in the army. They said, he's too young. They said, uh, how about the CCC camp at Civil Conservation Corps? And that's uh, 16 to 18. Well, I was put in a, a, a CCC camp up in Wenatchee, Washington. I never seen so many apples in my life. <laughs> so I stayed there for two years, and then I got out of the CC and I joined the Army. And I went to Hawaii on the USS President Cleveland. When we got to Honolulu, they lined us all up and they had a stick six foot. I was about that much over six foot. They said, put him in a pack train. I didn't even know what a pack train was. And then on, that was Friday, and they took me, it took us down there on Monday, and early in the morning, about four o'clock, we hears this click, click, click coming up the road. And I told my buddy, I says, hey, that sound like mules. <laughs> he looked out, he said, yeah, the covered wagon. So they took 15 of us down there and put us in a pack train. I never, I never seen so many animals in my life. There was 400 horses and mules. We had a horse section, which the officers and nurses rode, then we had a polo team, then we had a wagon train, 48 wagons, four-line team with two drivers, then pack train. And they put that stick behind me, and I was about that much over that stick. So they said, put him in a pack section. I never seen so many mules in my life. I didn't even know what a mule was. I found out. I had pack mules over on the, in Hawaii. If any of you guys were in Hawaii and went up on Diamond Head, there's a winch up there and three gun emplacements. We've packed all the cement, sand and gravel, and food up there to build three gun emplacements, and then they had a winch to take the food up there every day, 
And I had the biggest mule with the dumbest driver, and I, I packed that winch up. Then when my buddy and I went up, my buddy had the cable, and I had the winch. And they said, now, how are you going to get it off? I said, just watch me. I loosened the rope, and it fell off. <laughs> so any of you guys go back to Hawaii, you see those three gun emblazements and the winch, that's what I helped to pack up on Diamond Head. Now, you guys probably never believed it. We walked around Wahoo, that was 98 miles, and we uh, led the mules. We didn't ride mules until 43. And then uh, we took all, all the mules around the island. We asked the, our lieutenant, uh, the Wilson, we asked him to ask the general to take up mules around the island. So we took them around. It took 10 days to go 98 miles by foot, not on a mule. We didn't get to ride a mule until 1943. We had over 400 animals there on uh, Wahoo. And if you ever go over there, you see all them gunmen placements on the, all the peaks on Wahoo because the Japanese were supposed to come back. And we were waiting for them. So they never did come back. We were glad of that. I have a, a hole in my skull now where a piece of the roof off the stable hit the blacktop and glanced under that uh, water trough then it went in my head. And a veterinarian officer, Colonel uh, Cox, he told the uh, technician, go down, bring the needle up and the thread. So he brought it up and he sewed it up and I carried that for 70 years until they reoperated. And you can see the hole in my head is about two inches. And I'm still wearing a helmet. They told me, because if I fall down, I'll make that hole bigger. So, <laughs> so I, 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 I'm still wearing it. Wear the so, helmet. What year did you get there? I got there June the 10th, 1941. I was there when the Japanese come through Koli Koli Pass. I counted 24, a nurse on the upper post, Kind of 25. I don't know where the extra one come in, but I know there was 24. Thank you so much for sharing with us, and especially take care of those mules because I know they're more high maintenance than we are. Well, thank you so much for gracing us. We also have Richard Glassbrenner, and you're probably wondering about this banner. So, you're going to tell us about this banner we have up here? You, know, you got to speak straight into that, so everybody. The, uh, the Japanese flag that was from uh, Okinawa. That was the last big battle of the uh, war, and uh, the Japanese had realized that they couldn't win the war, so they were going to make it a battle of uh, attrition. They were going to uh, figure that if they killed so many soldier or marines or whatever that eventually we would sue for peace but we had been on the island for a while and it rained for oh maybe four or five days like a monsoon rain 
And finally, we were relieved and we went to the back and there was a scream. And you went there and you, uh, you took your clothes off and you washed yourself upstream. Then there was uh, scrub brushes and uh, soap and that. You, you did your uniform and that. And then there were uh, guards standing around that wasn't secured. We didn't want to be caught with our pants down, you know. And uh, we were, le after we got, and the sun come out and the stuff basically dried, we got dressed and my buddy Staub and I, we took a little trail off to the side and uh, going along, there was two bushes and there was a green bottle lying outside. Well, if you see a green bottle, you figure it's probably sake. So you're looking for something to drink. So went over there and the bushes spread the bushes and it's a little cave. And on a litter, there's a Japanese officer laying on this litter, no blanket, like a reed thing over him. And his left arm is hanging out and he had been shot in the head. I don't know how long he had been laying there, you know, but uh, I saw dead people that looked better than this man. I mean, he was absolutely pathetic. And then uh, the blood and the flies and the smell, all that. And uh, when in, the cave might have been 10 feet long, six feet wide. And went in, and the first thing the Japanese did, motioned to my canteen. And he wanted water. Well, this was, usually it was, you just shot him. There was nothing to it, you know. But I give him some water. And uh, he motioned, go out, to leave, you know. And my buddy Staub, he said, well, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you find them, you shoot them. I mean, talking like this as though, what did you have for breakfast? You know, a year or so before, you're standing on a corner or in a drugstore having a Coke, and then a little while later, you're running around with a rifle and, it's it's amazing how you can be transformed into this. But anyhow, they had put a directive out. The Japanese would not surrender. And those that did surrender, well, they, that was the end of them. That didn't make any difference whether they surrendered or not. They shot them anyhow. But they were getting ready for the invasion of Japan. And they wanted, if you could get officers or Japanese soldiers that you could uh, interrogate and find out where you were gonna go, what was going on in Japan, because we had all the Japanese locked up in uh, California in the camps, and we already knew about the invasion of Japan. We were gonna land at the Yokosuka Naval Base, and they told us to expect between 60 and 70% casualties. Every man, woman, and child will be your enemy. The worst enemy you can have is a religious fanatic, someone that believes there's glory in death. And you have the same thing with the Muslims now, you know, that, you know, it's an honor to be killed or whatever. 
and the Japanese had been indoctrinating the children for hundreds of years in this. The emperor is a god, it's death before dishonor. Well, anyhow, I said, well, maybe we should take him out and take him and have him be, if he could be interrogated, you know. And he said, well, I don't think it's a good idea. And I said, well, I'll go around the back and get the litter and you get the one in the front. Soon as started back, on the right-hand side, he had a rifle under the litter. But he was so weak, he couldn't raise the rifle, and he shot, and the bullet just went out the front of the cave. Well, he shot at us. We both kicked off a couple rounds, and that was the end, you know. Now what are we going to do? And Staub says, well, maybe we can bury him. I said, oh, I don't know, leave him here, you know. Ah, bury him. So we dig a ditch. I mean, you say grave, but this is a ditch maybe. And we're dumping them in the... I mean, this is ridiculous to be able to talk about something like you say, dumping somebody in a ditch or anything. But when we put him in the ditch, his tunic come open, and he had sort of an attache case. And that flag was in it, and, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I was a souvenir hand the whole war. So I grabbed the flag, and then there was a wallet. And that's the worst thing you can do, is go through someone's private possession. Because in the wallet, there was a picture of a, a lady, two boys in sailor uniform, and a little girl in their kimonos. I get, that was his family, you know. But we put them in a ditch and covered them over a little bit. But I had that picture for years and years. And every now and then I would look at it. And you can think about this stuff, but you cannot dwell on it. It'll drive you crazy. So my boy lived, and his family lived in Japan at one time. And I was going to, I went to, the, got in touch with the government, and they were going to sponsor it to, I would go over and see if we could find this family. Uh, but then what do you say to a person? I shot your husband or something, you know, so that all fell through. But uh, the picture I had for years, maybe 50 years, and one day I looked at it and I thought, what a waste. All this we've gone through and things are no better today. So I burned the picture. And uh, like I said, you can... You can think about it, I could talk about it, but to sit there and dwell on it, it's just, it'll drive you wacky. Thank well, Richard, you. thank you so much for sharing with us. And thank you for bringing the souvenir for us to, to see, too. Thank you so much. Well, we also have Frank uh, Mayer with us today, who's another World War II veteran from the, and uh, so maybe you can tell us how, how you got in the Army and when and uh, what you did after that. Well, I was drafted. I was 18. I was drafted. Went to Camp Wheeler, Macon, Georgia for infantry training. Went over and uh, we landed in Leyte to get ready for the invasion of uh, Japan. And uh, it was a, re a replacement depot. And uh, they dropped the bomb and so I stayed there. And uh, they sent me to Clark Field 
And when we got into Clark Field, they put us on a, uh, a big open space and said, pitch your tents. So we pitched our tents. There was about 12 of us. And about an hour after we pitched our tents, the rain came. And we laid in that and slept in it until morning, and we were soaking wet and muddy. And so then they took us in. They talked to us and uh, wanted to know what all you had to do in uh, civilian life. I was 18 years old, out of high school. And uh, they said, well, uh, we're going to send you to Palawan, and you're going to replace the supply sergeant down there, and you're going to be a sergeant. And that's where I went. And if anybody read that book, Unbroken, Palawan is about uh, oh, 10 miles long and about three miles wide. And it's the southernmost island of the Philippines. And it's about 300, 250, 300 miles from northern Borneo. And uh, if you were reading uh, The Unbroken, where uh, the Japs had our prisoners, there was 50 uh, soldiers that were uh, uh, prisoners of the Japs, and they made them dig a ditch, and they told them that there was an air raid coming. But there was no air raid and no bombing or anything. They poured gasoline on the 50 soldiers and then set them on fire. And uh, I was on that island, and I saw where that was. Then we moved up to uh, Florida Blanca in Luzon, and we stayed there until uh, I went home in October of '46. Uh, and that, that was it. Well, Frank, so thank you so much for coming today, and thank you for your service and for sharing with us. And we have my friend John Barber, uh, who was a Marine in Vietnam. And John, we're going to get you to, uh, to share with us, if you would, please, sir. Uh, okay. I joined the Marine Corps in 1965. I came from a dysfunctional home, had a bad childhood. And my brother, he quit school in his junior year, and he joined the Marine Corps. So I told my mother that uh, I'll finish high school, and uh, I'm out of here. And I, and I joined the, the Marine Corps. And uh, went to Paris Island uh, boot camp and went to uh, Camp Pendleton to uh, form a unit there. I was in Hotel Company 25, 1st Marine Division. And then from there, we went to uh, Okinawa for three months, I believe, and uh, did some guerrilla warfare training there. And uh, from there, I went to Vietnam. Uh, landed, in, uh, uh, landed in April of 66. Well, John, we have several slides. Maybe you can tell us what these are. Is that you in a bunker? Uh, that's me. Uh, I think I had a, uh, we're just getting ready to go on patrol, uh, helmet and uh, uh, M14. Um, that's on the hill. Okay. Here, uh, these are uh, four guys that, uh, uh, buddies of mine, and uh, the guy on the far, the f uh, front right, Paul Kellum. Uh, I thought he died, and uh, he thought I died, and I found him on the internet, uh, and we got together about uh, six or seven years ago. The guy uh, on the far right, he, he lives in Newcastle, found him about eight or nine years ago. And Jimenez is the guy with the glasses, he died uh, maybe about eight or nine years ago. 
and we're just sitting around killing some time playing cards. Uh, that was an intent. This is a uh, picture, it's called a praying picture. I go to different uh, 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 stores, Barnes and Nobles, and I, I look for uh, books and pictures that, uh, about Vietnam, and I see a lot of my friends in there. And I found this picture, uh, it was on, this is on uh, Operation Prairie, and uh, that's me on the far right. I have a plastic spoon in my pocket. And uh, I, I was looking at the book. It's, it's this, this picture is in a book called uh, Larry Burroughs, Vietnam. Larry Burroughs was a French photographer who died in 1971 in a helicopter crash. And uh, we were just getting ready to go out on, on a big operation. And uh, I think that was this Sunday afternoon. And uh, uh, we were saying our, our prayers. This is... Uh, Leland Hammond, who he just got machine gun. This was taken in Kantian, 1966. It was a big battle there. And uh, uh, this was in Life magazine, 1966 or 67, I'm not sure. But those four guys carrying his body uh, to a helicopter. And uh, these four guys met, they had a reunion in 1989, I believe. And now they've, uh, they've, they've all passed. That's my squad right there. Uh, this is my squad on patrol. Uh, in the far background, that's the DMZ right there. This is up in, uh, up in Kantian near the Lotion border. We, had, uh, we all carried M14s there. We didn't have any M16s yet. This is a, uh, it's called an Antos. It's got a small little tank with uh, six recordless, 106 recordless rifles. It's a pretty bad, bad machine. It uh, puts out a lot of firepower. Uh, we had two tanks. Uh, it was during the monsoon season and they got bogged down in the mud. They couldn't move. So there was about 100 NVA in front of them coming towards them. Uh, so they called 12 of us, a squad, to, to go and uh, try to get these tanks away from these 100 NVA, 12 of us. Uh, so we had a big firefight there. And if you can, right at the top of the picture, there's a jet uh, dropping napalm. So we, we got out of that situation uh, pretty well. And uh, we took these tanks back to, our, uh, back to our hill that we were on. At, uh, that, was, that picture was signed by Carlos Hathcock, who was a... Uh, uh, sniper. He had the most kills in Vietnam. This was uh, this is called Red Hill because of all the, all the clay and mud, and that's one of the foxholes that we fought out of. He had a, he's got an M60 machine gun there. But uh, every every day on every day on patrol, uh, we would lose either from my squad or a different squad, we would lose two or three people a day, either by snipers or, uh, well, we called them booby traps back then, but there's uh, IEDs. This is a picture of, his name is George Townsend. We're, I'm standing right behind him. I have a radio, and uh, this is a, we're looking through a barbed wire fence. Just before he knelt down, we were standing up looking through this barbed wire fence and we had two rounds come over our head. So uh, uh, we, uh, we kind of hit the deck there. 
He's carrying an M79. Uh, we had two squads with us that day, and we broke through that fence and had a big, uh, big firefight there. Uh, George Townsend uh, was a good friend of mine, and uh, every every uh, every year we have a reunion uh, hotel company, and I was trying to find out where George was, and I've had that picture, I've had this picture here for over 45 years, and. Uh, uh, I found out uh, he passed about eight years ago, and I found out where, his, uh, where he lived, and I talked to his wife. And uh, I sent her this picture, and uh, I'm going to see her in uh, this September to get together. This was a, uh, I was coming home, uh, I was, this was in Okinawa, my first tour, uh, just, uh, just getting ready to come back to the States. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is a uh, picture. Uh, we were in Malaysia on R and R, and a lot of I don't know if a lot of you guys been on R and R, but uh, we were drinking that day, and uh, these are pit vipers, and this was at a temple, and nobody would pick up these snakes except two dumb Marines, <laughs> and uh, they put them on our heads, and we hand we were, you know holding them, and uh, like I said, we were drinking. And, you know, we didn't care what was going to happen to us because, uh, you know, we we're going to, uh, we're heading back to Vietnam, so uh, we just thought we'd have a pretty good time. Well, glad that you survived that one. Yeah, yeah, I did. And uh, that was my, uh, that was my second tour. Um, I was in the uh, MPs in uh, Fubai. Uh, that was my orders to come home. Uh, I like to say one story that uh, we were in Okinawa, and you know when you're—I uh, I think I told this story before—but uh, when you're in Okinawa, you know you're after training, you hit the you hit the town, and you're drinking, and uh, you have your way with your women, and back then, in '66, it was two dollars to have a good time with a young lady. $2 for a half hour, $5 for an hour. So me and my buddy were standing on the corner, and these two lovely Okinawans picked us up and said, do you want to go to the hotel? I said, sure, let's go. You know, you, know, you think you know everything. So we go to this hotel, and uh, he gets a room. I get a room, and the, the, the room, the walls are paper thin, so you can hear each other. So we're getting undressed. We're laying, I'm in bed naked, my buddy's in bed naked. And she says, do you have any condoms? I says, no. She says, well, give me $20 and I go to the front desk. And my buddy does the same thing. So we're laying there naked, waiting. Five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by. <laughs> I said, Joe, your, your girl come back yet? No, did yours? No. They both took off. They got 40 bucks, they took off with us. <laughs> Left us there. <laughs> Yeah, we got yeah, we got screwed that way. Yeah. <laughs> so we went into town looking for him. We couldn't find him. We, we just ended up at a bar drinking, laughing about the whole thing, you know. But you know, when you're young, you you, you think you know everything, you know. But uh, they showed us. And this is uh, this is my family right here. Uh, my wife, two daughters, and uh, my two grandsons. And that's what it's all about, you know. You know, when you're in combat. You know, what, what is combat? You know, um, is, is, it, is it walking on patrol? Is, is it, 
you know, in a firefight, and uh, usually you're, you're, you're scared to death. Uh, I was scared every, every day. And usually a firefight only lasts maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes. But at the time, you think it lasts forever. And you're only scared when you're on patrol. Uh, it's, it's the anticipation of what's going to happen. But once the firefight starts, uh, your instincts kick in, and, and you do what you have to do. Uh, we, were on, we were on patrol one time. We got caught in an ambush. Three guys in front of me got killed. And uh, my lieutenant got shot. Uh, so they, they, they stopped firing for a couple of minutes. I guess they were reloading. And we, we dropped down to the ground, and we, we, we were firing back. And there was a friend of mine who, he had an M60 in his, uh, uh, his machine gun jammed. So he got up, opened the breach, and while he was fixing his rounds, he got machine gun across the stomach. You know, that, that lasted maybe 20 minutes. We lost about 12 to 15 guys that day. But I'm sure it happens to a lot of guys, you know, especially World War II veterans here. But uh, that's combat, you know, and that's what we were trained to do. That's what we did. Can I ask you a question? Sure. You said that you re-upped for another tour. I would imagine you'd want to get out of there once your tour was over. Why did you volunteer for a second tour? Well, at the time, um, you spent uh, 13 months there. And guys were coming back to the States for another two, three months, and were getting shipped right back to Vietnam for another 13. So I extended for six months. That way, I could cut my dying time in half. After going through all that combat, what was it like to come home and readjust to you know, life on the home front and then life as a civilian? Well, they, um, when you left, they told you not to talk about it, not to say anything about it, uh, to forget about it. So I did, you know, for about, gosh, I don't know, 20, 25 years. And uh, there was no pat on the back. There was no thank you. That's why there's so many of us with PTSD now, you know. Yeah. Thank you so much, John. Thank you well, for coming. Well, you know, one, one more thing here. Uh, I, I just want to say that... Um, I'm alive today because uh, of the pilots dropping napalm uh, over our heads. Uh, I'm alive today because of the uh, uh, ships off the Gulf of Tonkin uh, firing their 16-inch shells towards us uh, to getting rid of a lot of NVA uh, soldiers that was coming up towards our hill. Uh, I'm alive today because of the uh, helicopter pilots that saved a lot of us coming back off of patrol. And the, uh, I'm alive today because of the, the, the Navy corpsmen who trained with Marines and fought with Marines and saved a lot of lives and not thinking of themselves at all. So uh, that's why I'm here. Well, thank you, John, and thank you to all the people who supported you. Well, we have another uh, Vietnam veteran with us uh, today, Bill Dice. Bill, where are you? You're back here somewhere. There you are. Maybe you'd like to, you were there early on. Uh, maybe you'd like to share with us a, a little bit. I don't have any story like that. 
Well, but tell us what you did do and, and what you experienced there, but, because it is important. I mean, a lot of people think it's not, but it is, because you were a key team member, just like everybody else here was, wherever they were called to go and serve. Well, I don't know. I, I got uh, drafted, and I got sworn in on uh, November 23rd, 1963, the day Kennedy got shot. So we were all downtown waiting. We thought, maybe we'll get home tonight because there's no commander-in-chief to swear us in. But we didn't know they were sending the guy down there to swear in old Johnson. So uh, we didn't get home that night. But I ended up going to uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and then Fort Gordon, Georgia, for uh, uh, military police school. And we were stationed in... uh, Presidio San Francisco, beautiful army base. It's almost like being on a vacation, being stationed there. But the, the army always threatens you with something. They always threaten you if you screwed up, you'd go to the 504th Military Police Battalion up in Fort Lewis, Washington. So we sort of followed most of the rules. But if you're in charge of enforcing the rules, you have a little leeway there because you're not going to give your buddy a ticket and he ain't going to give you a ticket. So we were doing fine until the 504th Battalion in uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, got orders to go to Vietnam, and they were way short of men, so we got uh, transferred up there. We left Fort Lewis, Washington, we flew down to Oakland and uh, boarded a ship to go to Vietnam, and uh, one guy was puking seasick before we got under the Golden Gate Bridge. So I said, this fellow's going to have a long ride. So we ended up in uh, sailing the Blue Pacific. It's pretty smooth. We stopped in Guam to take on uh, more food and uh, fuel. And we'd already run out of fresh water on that transport ship. So we hadn't showered. We got off the ship in Guam, marched down a dusty road, took a shower, Drank a lot of beer. I don't know who provided the beer. We marched back this dusty road. Now we're dirtier than when we left after our shower. So uh, on the way back, there was a bunch of sailors there. We decided we'd trade hats with them. We traded our baseball caps. We wore them green baseball caps with these sailors for them white, well, I don't know what they call them, white hats. Well, some of them wanted to trade and some of them didn't but we were very much outnumbered them so everybody trading we got back to the ship and you have to like salute when you get back on the ship and ask permission and all that so we didn't have no hats so we just sort of ran up the bank gang plank give them a fast salute and uh went back on the ship so then we we stopped in uh where i got off the ship was uh Queen on it was a seaport, but there was no uh, no pier there, so they had these big steps that they swung over the side of the ship, and we had our duffel bags and our M14s, and we walked down these steps and jumped into these uh, I guess they call them ducks, and they we threw our duffel bag in, jumped in the duck, and they took us on shore, and we uh, that's where we got off the ship. So then the, uh, that was just one company of the battalion, Company C, which I was in. And then we went out to the middle of nowhere and slept in them. They call them pup tents, but they're really 
shelters halves because you need you need a buddy with the other half or you're, you're going to have a lean to so we put up our shelter halves and slept there for about oh i don't know i i should have have better memory but i don't know how many days and eventually we ended up with a squad tents and we we stayed out in the boondocks and then we patrolled in town and there was a there was a curfew and that's nobody was allowed on the streets civilians military nobody after nine o'clock so that was our main job was patrolling in town once in a while somebody would get an idea that they were going to blow up a bridge, so we had to load into Deuce and a half and go out and sit underneath the bridge all night. <laughs> Nobody blew it up and go back. And that was about all, all we, we uh, did. We used to patrol in time in these, we had these Ford Jeeps. They were like Willie's Jeeps, but they were made by Ford. And they were like four-seaters, but I was telling these guys earlier, as being guests there, we had no authority over the civilians in, in, in this country, so we had to get a, a civilian policeman to ride with us. He was, well, they, they wore white hats, they called them white mice, because they were not known for their bravery. But we rode with a civilian Vietnamese policeman who had no jurisdiction over the South Vietnamese military, so he rode with us, a South Vietnamese military policeman. So now we got four in the Jeep. So then there were some airborne, 101st, one hill, couple over hills from us. And the airborne don't want nobody but airborne putting their men in any kind of situation. So you had to have a 101st airborne military policeman with you. Now we're up to five. Now, the Marines, they didn't have military police over there. What they did, if they were in town, they sent a big sergeant with us riding in the Jeep, and he took care of any Marines that got in any trouble. But there was still another guy that nobody messed with. They were from the South Korean, they called them the Tiger Division Marines, and they were mean, mean dudes, and they... Nobody would mess with them, so they sent a South Korean military policeman with us in the Jeep. Now, it's very crowded. Sometimes you have to go two Jeeps together. The only guy you could pick up was an Air Force guy. They loved getting ridden back to the base. They didn't mind any trouble. I guess they didn't get in trouble. I don't know. So one time we took this fellow back to the Air Force base. And he said, stop in the mess hall, see if we can get something to eat. Well, we went down the mess hall, because we'd been eating all B and C rations, all C's and B's, no fresh food at all. So the guy says, all we have left is beet salad. Well, beet salad and onions. So I got home years later, and I told my friend's mother, boy, when, when we got to that Air Force base, we had this most wonderful meal beet and onion salad. So every time I ran into his mother, she gave me two jars of beet and onion salad as a, because that was my favorite meal. And that's all I have to say.
Well, thank you so much for your service, and thank you so much for sharing with us today. And you actually did a lot of stuff, so that was uh, uh, was very very enlightening. Uh, we have another Vietnam veteran uh, with us today, too, Harvey Bowser. Where's Harvey? Oh, there you are over there on the other side of the room. No wonder I couldn't see you. So looks like you were an aviator. What got you into the, to the Navy, and what got you into aviation? Well, first of all, what, what sort of aircraft were you flying? I was uh, flying the A-7, and uh, that looks like a pretty early picture. So uh, looks like they have A-4s up on the uh, catapult up on the bow there. Uh, I guess 68, yeah, that would have been A-4s. Probably VA-46, which was, I was in, was uh, Squadron John McCain was in. He was flying A-4s when he got shut down. He was not on the Kennedy, however. Um, I got into the military out of, uh, out of college. I went into flight school. And I kept telling them, uh, send me to the West Coast. And so they sent me to the Pentagon. And I said, please send me to the, uh, to the West Coast. And so they sent me to Bermuda. And uh, I, I did pretty well in Bermuda. And I finally got back into a fleet squadron. That's when I... Uh, That's a nice place. <laughs> well, it was, the, the war was going on. And uh, I was young and stupid and uh, a new aviator. And uh, they would, the technical term is full of piss and vinegar. And... Uh, I wanted to go to an operational fleet squadron. So I finally got there. And uh, VA-46, we were on the Kennedy. We were the next ship that was scheduled to go to Vietnam in 1973. In 1973, and I think it was April or so, they uh, signed the peace treaty. So we went to the Mediterranean. And uh, Joe, I was called back into the Mediterranean. Uh, I was flying air cover for your, uh, your group there in the, uh, in the uh, war there in the Eastern Med. That's about my, uh, my sea stories about chasing uh, Russian bears across the Mediterranean. And uh, the, uh, the 73 war, uh, we were in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, we had completed our Mediterranean cruise. We were on t- uh, had just got off a uh, North, uh, uh, North Atlantic Arctic cruise uh, exercise with NATO and the uh, Norwegians. And we were in Edinburgh, and uh, the staff had already left because we were headed home to Norfolk after a uh, seven-month tour. And uh, the war broke out in the... Uh, in Israel, and uh, the uh, staff had already left, and uh, we were getting ready to sail. And the staff comes back up the uh, the gangplank, going do 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 do. And I said, "Oh my!" And so we went back into the Mediterranean for another uh, month and a half, and uh, saw the uh, very large concentration of Russian ships. They they dumped the entire uh, Russian Black Fleet into the Eastern Mediterranean during that war, and uh, it was. Uh, Kind of the highlight of uh, my career, flying with the Russians. It was a lot of fun. Well, did you enjoy flying the A-7? A-7 is a hoot. It seems like everything I've done has been, uh, I'm an only child. Uh, I've always been a loner person. Uh, I flew a single-seat airplane. Uh, it had only one engine, and uh, it was great. I yes. loved it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing today. Well, we also have uh, Ken Kushner. Ken, where are you? Oh, there you are, over there. So this looks like you in the, in the Army. Yeah, I was a young guy then back then. I was, uh, ended up as a platoon sergeant in Korea, and uh, I guess it took a long way to get there. And there's a lot of things that happen in the service, and a lot of times, yeah, there's things that go on in combat zones and what have you, but I classify some things as like human human interest stories or human relations kind of stories. And when you're a platoon sergeant, you don't have to, you only look after, 
don't look out for yourself, but you're looking out for, for your platoon. And there was always, every day, that there was always something uh, going on uh, with the guys that uh, you were involved with. And one day we got uh, letters came, and we were all reading these letters, and then one fellow, he said, Ken, will you help me? And I said, and I knew that he was from the South, and he probably went to third grade, and he didn't have much reading skills and, uh, and writing skills. And uh, he said, maybe help me read this letter. And uh, he said, I think I know what this one word means, but I'm really not sure what's going on. And I start reading this letter, and I said that, uh, yeah, it's, the letter here says that uh, your wife is pregnant. And uh, he said, how long have we been here? I said, well, we've been here 11 months. And uh, he said, uh, 11 months? And uh, he said, it takes, what, nine months to have a baby? And he started counting on his fingers. He said, you sure we're here 11 months? I said, yeah, we're here 11 months. And he said, and I says, and if it's nine months, your wife's pregnant. He said, well, is there some way maybe that, that that could be extended a little bit? And I said, no, it, it happens. I said, it's nine months, and your, your wife is pregnant. And then he started beating himself up, and he said, oh, maybe it was that neighbor across the street. And then he was talking about, you know, maybe it was my, whatever. You know? I said, don't beat yourself up. And I said, that, uh, I said uh, your wife's pregnant. He said, well, then that, that baby's not mine. I said, no, he's not yours. And I said, I put my arm around him, and we start talking. And uh, I said, you have a lot of support from me and the rest of the, the, rest of the troops. But, uh, yeah, there's always kind of stories you think of. Um, just about every day that went by that there was, you know, there was always some kind of a, a story that involved uh, whether it was uh, death in the family, whether it was somebody homesick or somebody's uh, wife was pregnant or sometime a girlfriend was pregnant. And uh, there were just so many things that went on, and uh, there were things that you had to deal with, and uh, Dear John letters, and I got one myself, so I, I knew what it was, and sometime a guy would come up after a mail call, and he'd say, you know, I got a Dear John letter, you know, it was one of those kinds of things, but uh, every day that there was something going on, not only with, you know, what stuff was going on with the Army, but, you know, things that were going on at home, and uh, I thank the Veterans Club, this is my first year, really, coming and, and, and uh, to the Veterans Club, but it gave me an opportunity to reflect back on a lot of, a lot of stories that uh, I've completely forgot about. And uh, when this gentleman was talking about Vietnam, and, and uh, as we said, in, well, I was like 65 miles north of Seoul, and one time they gave us uh, an opportunity to go back to Seoul to have one day off. And so we go into this hospital. You can call it ill repute, but they called themselves business girls. So we figured, oh, the monkey business, I guess. So we go there, and we're in, we're in this area, and all of a sudden the girl, she comes in, a couple of girls come in, and uh, she said, it'll be $10 for an hour. And we said, okay. So we gave her the $10, and we're laying there, and laying there five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to go by, and uh, she didn't come back. So we were, <laughs> what the hell is this all about? So we were out about, in, in Seoul, we ran into these uh, troops from Belgium, and we were talking and uh, back and forth, and then we went related this story. And the Belgians, they said they just hated the American MPs. She said they they were bad, they were bad troops. And then it, we were relating the story about it in this house. He said, "Well, this is what what happens." He said, "You go in, you give the girls the money, and then they leave. And then 10, 15 minutes go by, and they come running up and they holler, MP come, MP come.'" And then everybody, you know, they take off and they go out of this house 
And then what they were doing, they were splitting the money with the MPs. And these guys from Belgium, they said, holy hell, he said, you're all Americans, you're here together, you have the same mission. And he says, and yet they're making money uh, <laughs> when you go into these places. And uh, there was kind of, like I'm saying, there were so many things that you know, went on in the service. And like I said before, it gave me a chance to reflect back. And I could talk for hours and hours about some of the things that went on as far as uh, the, human end, the human end of things and how, how things did happen. But uh, times in the service, and there were good times, obviously, and there was bad times. But uh, it was amazing. When I was a young kid, there was five of us. We were downtown Pittsburgh, and we were walking down Smithfield Street, and we look over at the old post office, and they said the Marines had a recruiting station there. So we said, oh, let's go and see what's going on. Maybe we'll join the Marines. What the hell? We're young kids, five of us, 17 years old. We go in. And the recruiting officer said, what are you guys in here for? He said, we want to join the Marines. He said, how old are you? We said, we're 17. He said, you know, there's a war on. I said, well, that's why we want to go, because our brothers went, and, and the guys in the neighborhood went. I said, we want, we want to go into the service. And he said, no, no. He said, here, you take these papers, you go home, and you ask your parents, you know, about joining the Marines. So we said, oh, we all go home. And I told my mother and father, I said, well, I'm joining the Marines. I said, we're going down next week. He said, uh, I said, my dad said, I'm not signing your papers. So I called my brother who was going to Duquesne University at the time. He told him this, what Kenny's going to be doing. He wants to join the Marines. My brother said, no, no, don't sign him papers till I get home on Friday. My brother came home and he said, boy, the Marines are looking, looking for guys like you. They're kind of a rebel you are. He said, they'll beat the hell out of you. So I asked my dad, he said, do you have any money? My dad said, what, do you, what for what? He said, she said, call my sister in Florida and you ship him down to Florida. And uh, to get away, if he's that crazy guy, he wants to join the Marines. So I go to, I would go down to Florida, I'm down there for a while, and then I came back home, I went to work, then I got drafted, I went to Korea in, in 1953. But uh, I want to thank the you know, opportunity to say a few things, but when you think back that uh, all the kind of stories that, that went on, that uh, it was just amazing. That uh, I remember one time we were down in Seoul, and uh, we're coming down, we were, we ended up in drinking, and we ended up in this uh, this place, and uh, you know these girls are in there, and then all of a sudden, this Davis he hollers, he was from Milwaukee, hollered, "Cush!" He said, "We have to get out of here." He said, "Let's get going." And we said, "What's going on?" And we're going down, and we come down this alley. He said, "I didn't pay this girl," <laughs> and he said, "Now they're going to be coming after us." And we ran, and we jumped in the taxi cab, and. Uh, and uh, well, you know, we took off, but uh, that wasn't all of us going to these you know, business places, but there were things that, uh, that you, you think back now that uh, that was a very good experience, and I was kind of immature, and I, I grew up in a service, because when I got into the service, uh, it seemed like for the first couple of days, I always got into a position of leadership, and that was probably the, the best thing for me to grow up and, uh, and become you know, partic- you know, a man, but... Uh, like I said, you can reflect so many stories. I mean, some of the Koreans that would be out on guard duty, and, and they were always studying, we had called Katusas, and they were Koreans attached to the United States Army, and they were always reading, and they were always learning, trying to learn English. And the one, we were out there one night, and he was saying that, uh, he said, I don't understand. He said, English so hard. And I said, why? He said, look up, look up in the sky. And I said, yeah. He said, the stars were bright. And I said, yeah, they're bright. And he said, look at the moon. He said, look how bright the moon is. And then he kept saying, he said, yeah, sometime. I said, oh, that kid, you know, he's, that man's bright, you know. And he kept going on and on. He gave me like 12 examples of what bright was. And he said, why don't you just have one word 
you know, bright would mean like would mean one word, but uh, it was kind of funny the kinds of things that uh, you know that would come out. Of the Koreans they just love to uh, to study uh, uh, English language. Now one time they were taking the, the Koreans away out of our outfits, and uh, they were sending them back, and they were going to join the they had to join the Korean army. So a couple of months go by, and all of a sudden this Joe shows up, and I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "I ran away." I said, "What do you mean you ran away?" He says, "I ran away." He said. They go down there, they said, we always had good clothes, we had three meals a day, he said, we have to go eat, you know, this fish heads and rice and kimchi and, and all this kind of food. And he said, this is what clothes we have to wear, and they ship us in, you know, it's cold, and they ship us in these boxcars, and we're running around. And he says, and so I left, and, and he said, I, can you take care of me? I said, Joe, I'll take care of you. And I said, we, we went a little bit away from the company, and there was caves up there, and I said, you know, you're going back and forth. You can stay in this cave, and we'll, we'll take care of you, and we'll, you know, we'll feed you. But I said, you're going to get into serious trouble, I said, if you don't go back. But uh, well, we kept around for about, uh, about a month, and uh, uh, it, it was you know, kind of sad when you think about it that, uh, that uh, these, were good, these were good people. But that, that's, I mean, I could go on. There's just so well, many. Well, thank you, Ken. Yes, we are about out of time, but thank you so much for uh, sharing with us today. <laughs> Well, Tony, we like to close singing God Bless America. Are you willing to, to lead us in that too? You did so well with the Star Spangled Banner. We're going to keep you fully employed. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the life from the light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the ocean white with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my home, sweet home. And bless Kate Smith. Well, thank you so much, Tony. Appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. And you'll get your newsletters next week, and we look forward to, to seeing you. Be sure to pick up your magazines on the way out. You've been listening to another live storytelling event by the Veterans Breakfast Club. For more information about the Veterans Breakfast Club, including a schedule of our events throughout Western Pennsylvania, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Veteransbreakfastclub.com.